This is Dr. Ben Lynch, and today we'll be mapping homocysteine on the 15-minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. This is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons on the clinical relevance of the functional nutrition matrix, the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition. The matrix is so important, not only because it causes us to stop and assess, but also because it reminds us of three very important factors in our care recommendations and outcomes. Everything is connected, we are all unique, and all things matter. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these critical aspects of care. Today on the 15-Minute Matrix, I'll be speaking again with Dr. Ben Lynch. Dr. Lynch is the best-selling author of Dirty Genes and a leader in the field of nutrigenomics. He's also president of Seeking Health, an innovative company providing supplements, courses, and tools designed to help people overcome genetic dysfunction and optimize health. After earning his Bachelor of Science in Cell and Molecular Biology from the University of Washington, Dr. Lynch then obtained a doctorate of naturopathic medicine from Bastyr University. I am so excited to invite Dr. Lynch back to the mic and to talk to him about this very important topic. Dr. Lynch, welcome back to the 15-Minute Matrix. Good to be here, Andrea. Thanks. Yeah, I am so excited, always excited to talk to you. Your knowledge is so important to a lot of people in the community. And we're talking today about homocysteine. It's a natural chemical in the body. It's a byproduct of the methylation cycle. Do I have that right? Yeah, it's a part of the, comes out of the food that we eat and part of the metabolism of our body when it generates it. So out of the food we eat, the body metabolizes it. Can you break that down a little bit for us? Yeah. So homocysteine, I like to put it into things that we we get. So homocysteine is just unmethylated methionine and methionine is methylated homocysteine. So put that in your hat. Right. That's the cycle. If we can envision the cycle there, we can see it, right? Yeah. So, I mean, why didn't they call methionine methyl homocysteine? I don't know. That would make stuff a lot easier if you have homocysteine coming around the the methionine cycle, then it becomes methylated. Now it's all methyl homocysteine. Then it makes SAMe and then it donates its methyl group to all these different things and becomes homocysteine again. Super easy. So methionine comes from protein that you eat. And so if you eat a lot of protein, you are generating a lot of methionine as the protein breaks down which can break down into homocysteine. So that's dietary. Then you can get uh, homocysteine generated from SAMe, which is the primary methyl donor in the human body. And that supports over 200 different genes in in the human body, many of which are extremely important as in controlling your genetic expression. Um, And you can get a lot of homocysteine production from methylation reactions from breaking down homocysteine from creating phosphatidylcholine, the primary component of your cell membranes, from creating creatine, a really, really important compound 
for brain development, brain maintenance, and muscle generation and repair. And we pee out creatine every day as creatinine, and we lose 1% to 2% of it. So it has to be generated. And if vegans and vegetarians are not consuming uh, sufficient uh, methionine or sufficient choline in their diet, then they have to synthesize all that creatine themselves. And that is a huge uh, burden on their methylation system. And they're creating a bunch of homocysteine. So vegan vegetarian diets are at risk here for high homocysteine. And when we think about homocysteine, I think as clinicians, we go right to the lab marker. And what you're talking about is its actual place in the cycle. I know you talk a lot about the myths of the lab marker and how it can't be looked at in isolation. What I think is happening, and you could probably see this more clearly than I, is that practitioners are being very reductionistic, particularly about that marker and not seeing the whole picture, what have you seen happen and why do you talk about the myths of the homocysteine lab marker? Boy, there are so many. So homocysteine is, first of all, it's it's not just a bad compound. It's it's actually a compound. It's It does good and bad things. Right. So that's one myth. You know, if you order a lab and your lab values for homocysteine uh, on the report, there's only greater than 15 micromoles per liter as bad according to the lab, there is no range for too low. Right. So that's one myth. That's a big, big problem. If you have too little of homocysteine, that methylation cycle does not happen. Mm -hmm. It doesn't happen. You have to have, it's a substrate for the next gene in line for methionine synthase. If methionine synthase does not have enough homocysteine, it can't do its job. So you need to have your homocysteine, you know, I like to see it around six to eight micromole per liter. So that that's good. Now, if it's any less than that, the patient probably isn't consuming sufficient protein. Um, that could be a, a big one. So if they are consuming a sufficient protein, what's the quality of it? Is it a protein soy bar that's GMO right. and they're chewing it really fast and swallowing it like a snake on the go while they're driving stressed out on the way to work where they don't want to go? Um, or are they eating high quality you know, grass-fed beef or in chewing their food and swallowing it and really absorbing it, or are they taking in acids? So all these questions, right? So if you see a low homocysteine, you need to think, is my patient eating sufficient protein and are they absorbing it? Now, on the flip side, if you see homocysteine greater than, say, 10, you got to think, okay, well, what's going on here? When did you last eat your, your last protein meal? Oh, I just had it two hours ago. Oh, well, you were supposed to be doing, you're supposed to be fasting, bud, when we did this test. I told you to fast. Right. So you got it. You got to make sure you, you evaluate that. And then, so that it has to be, you know, fasting overnight. So go ahead and have their evening meal and tell them not to go too crazy. Or if you want to see how functionally uh, they can metabolize homocysteine, go ahead and have them have a big uh, protein meal, but knowing that it could be elevated, you know, greater than 10. And if it is elevated, you have to be looking at, you know, a, their genetics, B, their nutritional intake, uh, C, what type of supplements they are taking. Folic acid is not the cat's meow here. That's got to be out. Um, and do they have a lot of oxidative stress, heavy metals, inflammation, and so on. So there's, there's a lot of nuances here in the, in the homocysteine cycle. 
That's so fascinating. While you're talking, I'm looking at my pathway planner. It's hard to understand without seeing it because it's not something that's in my mind's eye. It's probably, you could probably see the entire pathway in your mind's eye because of the way you work with it. And I'm going to link to your pathway planner in the show notes because whenever I'm trying to figure these things out, it's always helpful for me to see that visual And the visual here is looking at the kind of long route of homocysteine and the diet leading into that production of the methionine. And then that short route that leads to the methionine or down to the glutathione. And there are several nutrients that are dependent there on the cycle working like zinc. Is that correct? Yeah. So, I mean, imagine, you know, an oblong uh, oval. First, that's that's uh, what Andre is talking about—the long route, and that is the recycling of homocysteine. Okay, and then you have the short route, which is homocysteine going straight back up to methionine. It uh, uses one gene uh, called BHMT, and that uses zinc. And you never hear about zinc, you know, supporting homocysteine. It just you don't even hear it at all. Then you have there's only one route of the actual elimination of homocysteine, mm. and people don't understand that. People think, oh, I need to take B12 and folate to lower my homocysteine. No, I mean, kind of, but what B12, folate, and and zinc do is actually help you recycle it. Um, but recycling, you are going to have some loss there, but you know, from from metabolism. But the the real way to reduce homocysteine, uh, B6 is a is a big one, and B6 uh, takes your homocysteine and actually helps convert it to glutathione. So if you give your patient B6 and you're giving them the B12 as methylcobalamin or hydroxylcobalamin or adenosylcobalamin, and you're giving folate as methylfolate or even folinic acid, uh, also known as leucovorin, or you're giving uh, zinc and you're not seeing that your patient's homocysteine lower at all, A, you need to evaluate their dietary intake of protein. A lot of people are, are chugging way too much. Paleo has gone over the top. Excessive yep. intake can be a, be an issue, mm-hmm. or it could be heavy metals. So you got to make sure they're filtering their water and reducing arsenic levels. So maybe check their arsenic levels. Uh, you should be anyway, and you got to check their glutathione levels. Uh, if there's oxidative stress there, you know they're not going to be able to, to support that. And there's there's things also which slow um, CBS down, and and there's you got to solve that too. So there's so many clinical pearls in what you're saying. And you said testing glutathione levels. What's your preferred way to do that? You know, doctor's data does a, um, a glutathione and, you know, I would just say, consider theirs red blood cell glutathione. I did talk to Dr. David Quigg at doctor's data and I said, Hey, why don't you guys do that? And they said, well, because RBC glutathione is, you got to basically do that right in a lab and, and preserve it, you know, or maybe they do RBC glutathione, but they just don't identify it as reduced or, oxidized. I think that's what maybe I asked him. So just using red blood cell glutathione, I think would be uh, the best, but you keep in mind that RBC glutathione is just total glutathione. Mm -hmm. It's like ordering thyroid and just ordering TSH. You don't really know. Great. And we will link to your previous podcast on the 15 minute matrix where we mapped glutathione. But my biggest takeaways are that homocysteine is good and it's bad and that there's sort of a Goldilocks amount in the body that we need to function. Anything you'd add to that simplification before I go on to my yeah. next takeaway? Yeah. yeah, I want to emphasize that homocysteine is, is actually a good thing. Mm-hmm. 
And a lot of people talk about taking N-acetylcysteine as the, you know, as the best thing to increase your, your glutathione levels in an inexpensive way. A, I don't really agree with that because N-acetylcysteine is just a primary component of glutathione. But B, if N-acetylcysteine is a, is a main component of, of glutathione, where does that cysteine primarily come from? It comes from homocysteine. Mm. So homocysteine is actually a precursor to glutathione. Hmm. So if patients' homocysteine levels are too low, then what's happening is a lot of that homocysteine is being diverted because your patient is very, very uh, inflamed or they have a huge demand for glutathione. Maybe they have environmental exposures or, or what have you, or again, they're not consuming enough protein. So low homocysteine is a problem. Right. And the other big takeaway I have, and I always have this when I talk to you, Dr. Lynch, or I engage with your work, having gone to your conferences, you really do highlight the importance of the epigenetic factors, the diet, the stress, and what we're seeing when homocysteine isn't functioning properly, you mentioned oxidative stress, there's inflammation, there could be heavy metal, which is also causing inflammation and other factors. There's the wrong kind of uh, folate in the body being used. There could be yeast issues or gut issues. How do you bring us back to the, what we can do in the everyday while we're doing the digging? Because what I see is that so many practitioners get lost in the pathway that they've forgotten the person sitting in front of them. Yeah. The moment you start diving into minutiae and looking for those really cool biochemical reactions and what gene does what, and what enzyme does that, and you know what amount of cofactor is needed, that's when you start missing it. Your patient's sitting right across from you. Mm-hmm. Talk with them. Yeah. History, number one. I mean, come on. Right. Uh, look, genetics is awesome. I love genetics. Yes. But if, if you are not utilizing uh, your patient's history, you're you're not going to help. I mean, nine times out of ten, your patient knows what's wrong with them anyway. If you said, "Why is your homocysteine high?" Uh, at first, they'll look in deer in the headlights, right. and then they'll say, "You know, they say, well, it's a byproduct of of consuming too much protein.'" or a breakdown of, of your histamine, or you know, you're know you not consuming enough creatine in your foods because you're not eating meat and fish. Oh, I'm a vegetarian and vegan. Oh, how do I not have that on my chart? Right. I thought vegans and vegetarians don't have any cardiovascular disease. Well, why is my homocysteine, you know, 24? Mm-hmm. You know, well, because your body is, you're not consuming enough creatine, and you're not getting enough phosphatidylcholine, so your body is actually synthesizing all of this for you instead of you getting it from your diet, and you're putting a massive burden on your methylation system, and which is in turn generating massive amounts of homocysteine. So instead of giving you B12, which you've been taking, let's give you just some creatine and phosphatidylcholine supplementation because those are vegan and vegetarian, and we'll you know reduce the burden on your methylation system and thereby reduce the production of homocysteine. Yeah, it brings us right back to what things can we be tweaking where we're actually meeting them where they are and speaking in their language. Any final thoughts? I know you have a lot to say, Dr. Lynch, about homocysteine, but in our short time together, what more would you want to share with coaches and clinicians who may be caught in that trap or for whom you want to highlight some additional thing about homocysteine. Yeah. Um, a true way to, to measure hyperhomocysteinemia, you know, basically high blood homocysteine is methionine loading. So I would Google methionine loading test and learn 
about that because mm-hmm. what that is is that is a more functional evaluation of homocysteine levels and we love functional right yes. I mean, that's what we're doing here yeah. so if you if your patient eats a you know a decent somewhat protein meal at night or maybe they don't eat any protein maybe they just have you know carbs and that's their dinner and then you measure their homocysteine the next morning the half life of homocysteine is 3 to 4 hours that that's pretty quick. So if your patient is not consuming enough protein, then you might get a false look at their homocysteine levels mm. and, and it comes back and says it's six. Mm. When actuality, if they had a steak dinner, their homocysteine can shoot up to 30 mm. and you won't see it. Mm. And so you're going to miss their cardiovascular risk and their neurotransmitter risk and, and all sorts of other risks um, because you did not do that functional methionine loading test. That is such a good point, and it gives me a lot to consider. I look at all my lab markers. My homocysteine is usually high. Now I have an additional set of questions to ask myself when I'm taking that test. So thank you for so many clinical pearls today. As usual, Dr. Lynch, so excited to be here with you. Awesome. The 15 Minute Matrix is brought to you by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. Check out the latest in functional nutrition at functionalnutritionlab.com forward slash blog. The 15 Minute Matrix is produced, mixed, and edited by Rowan Bradley with production support from Natalie Merrill and the team at the Functional Nutrition Alliance. You can find episodes on all kinds of topics with more incredible guests at our podcast website, 15minutematrix.com. And if you'd like to be notified by email each week about our podcast releases, head on over to 15minutematrix.com forward slash notify. Also, please feel free to get in touch with us. We would love to hear your thoughts, your feedback, and who you'd like to hear next on the podcast. You can email us at ask at 15minutematrix.com. 